Hello and welcome back to the official Sasta podcast with me, Harry Stebbings. And I always love to see you behind the scenes. You can do that on Instagram at hstebbings1996 with two Bs. But time for the show today. And we've spent a lot of time in the world of marketing lately. And so I wanted to switch it up today and move to the sales and customer success side. And so with that, I'm delighted to welcome back to the show, Bridget Gleason, Head of Sales and Customer Success at Tidelift, the company providing managed open source backed by maintainers. Tidelift has raised over $40 million from some of the best in the business, including Foundry Group and General Catalyst. And as for Bridget, she has the most incredible track record. Before Tidelift, Bridget was VP of Sales at Logs.io, and before that was VP of Corporate Sales at Sumo Logic, where she drove ARR up by a record 237%. Before Sumo Logic, Bridget was VP of Sales at Yesware, where she increased MRR per rep by 450%. And finally, before Yesware, she was VP of Sales at Engine Yard, where she tripled monthly recurring revenue over the course of her three-year tenure in three key leadership roles. But before we move into the show today, Today, Lucidchart is a visual workspace that makes it easy to see and understand how your business works. Whether you're visualizing cloud architecture, whiteboarding ideas for a breakthrough application, redesigning team structures to be more agile, or streamlining a process that will drive greater productivity, Lucidchart helps you see how to make your business better. With more than 20 million people and 99% of the Fortune 500 relying on Lucidchart to see more, know more, and do more, join them by trying Lucidchart for free at lucidchart.com forward slash two. 20VC. That's lucidchart.com forward slash 20VC. And then there's a global pandemic. There's grim economic forecasts. Are you feeling the squeeze? An R&D tax credit can help you really lower your burn. If you qualify, and most tech startups actually do, the IRS and some state governments will give you a tax credit equal to 10% of your company's spend on development activities. You can even take the credit against payroll taxes if you're in the red. All you have to do is claim it. So what's stopping you? Cross-border solutions, an AI-driven R&D tax credit software eliminates the need for pricey consultants and allows you to apply for R&D credits all over the world for one low fee. It's your money. Keep more of it with Cross-Border Solutions, the global leader in AI-driven tax solutions. And you can request a demo today by visiting xbs.ai forward slash two zero. That's xbs.ai slash two zero. And there are two ways to add analytics to your application. Build them yourself with basic charts and dashboards using free charting libraries or use a comprehensive comprehensive analytics platform from a really trusted partner. If you've tried the build route, you know free is not free. Hidden costs like time, maintenance, and technical debt can really add up. And that's why you should check out Logi Analytics. Their developer-grade embedded analytics solutions make it easy to create branded dashboards and reports that scale within your own application. So stop wasting your dev team's time piecing analytics together and let them focus on your core application. Visit logianalytics.com forward slash Sasta. Visit them today and see see what is possible. But that's quite enough from me. So now without further ado, I'm so excited to hand over to Bridget Gleason, Head of Sales and Customer Success at Tidelift. Good. That's perfect. Okay. I think we're warmed up. Bridget, I have to say it is such a joy to have you back on the show. Thrilled to see about your recent move to Tidelift and such exciting times ahead there. But thank you so much for joining me today, Bridget. Well, Harry, it was great. You know, the last time we did this, it was, I think, February 2019. So just a little over a year ago. So really great to connect 
and get caught up. Absolutely it is. Listen, I love that episode so much when we did the first one, but it hit me. For those that maybe missed our first episode, which was so great, tell me, how did you make your way into the world of SaaS and how did you come to be the rock star head of sales and CS at Tidelift today? I love it. I love the rock star name that you give me, whether it's true or not. But Harry, I like to tell people that I took the jungle gym route here, meaning that it wasn't this straight line from rep to manager to VP. Mine was nothing like that. I was an English business major in school, but I taught in the engineering. I was a TA in the engineering school. I went into product marketing for the commercial arm of Xerox Park, which is a big computer research company here. Then I went into sales school, Xerox sales school. Then I started a company, which I sold in early 2000. Did a lot of consulting for high-tech startups. I really loved the startup space. Ended up taking VP of sales role with one of my customers. And then, gosh, Harry, I did all sorts of things. I opened an office in Ireland for one of the companies. I was the first U.S. employee for an Israeli company. And now at Tidelift, which interestingly, the CEO reached out to me after he heard the podcast that you and I did more than a year ago. That is amazing to hear. I did not know that, but I'm absolutely thrilled to hear that. And he clearly has great taste in podcasts. Well, he does have great tastes in podcasts. And I don't know that I would have found Tidelift. And it's just been a career defining role and move for me and really, really inspiring. So thank you. Thank you, Harry, for doing what you're doing. I absolutely love doing it. But I do want to start on a really interesting aspect because when we spoke last time, you were head of sales. And now with the new role with Tidelift, CS, customer success, has been incorporated into kind of your purview. And so with that, we, we have to have like a starting point for the strategy and the plan. And when we spoke before, you said the best starting point for customer success is company culture and value. What did you mean by this? And maybe is it better to take it turn by turn? And how does company culture play into the level and quality of customer success? There's always been this discussion. Does customer success start after you close a sale? Should the handoff start before the customer becomes a customer? Should customer success start when reps are reaching out? My belief, Harry, is that customer success starts with the culture of the company. And I read a book, God, it was years ago about Marriott. And J.W. Marriott was notorious for this. And he said, if we treat our employees right, they'll treat the customers right. And I think Marriott started in 1927. And in the early 30s, they were one of the earliest companies to give healthcare benefits to their employees. They really had an employee first and by extension, a customer first orientation. And I believe that 100% that if we're not treating each other well, and we don't have a culture that is engaging and respectful of the individual, it's going to be very hard for us to extend that to the people who we're dealing with. And when you look at just the statistics, Harry, of it, companies that have employees who are highly engaged are 22% more profitable. And so how do we do that? You've got to have a culture where employees not only survive, but they have to thrive. Can I ask, if we take that to kind of a practical level, because I totally agree in terms of that career development and the thriving, and, you know, we've seen kind of the chastising of the kind of foosball tables and, you know, la croix provisions that are kind of deemed culture often. What can one do on a practical level that you've seen work in terms of building that culture and company value so inherently into kind of how we think about also customer orientation? Well, I think there's a lot of different pieces of it. I know just at a manager level, one of the things that 
I try to do with my direct reports is, first of all, how are they doing? Just how are they doing as humans? And especially now around COVID-19, how we're doing, we're all under a lot of stress. So checking in with how people are doing, as well as their professional desires and aspirations, that those are always top of mind. One thing we did as a company was, it was last Monday, our executive team said, you know what, we need a maintain ourselves Monday. And everybody just got a day off. And it's an allowing of people to bring their whole selves. And this sort of leads to the next part, Harry, when you asked about value. And I believe that values lead to value. So values lead to more also value creation. And tide lift is unique in my experience in terms of values. There is not a person in the company who couldn't rattle off the four values. We talk about them every day and have them integrated into their work. We don't need to have them posted. We don't need to have them really reviewed. They are so woven into our brand. And so that's how we deal with one another internally as well as externally. And I'll tell you what they are really quickly because I think they're sort of interesting. There's four of them. So optimistic. We see an amazing future. We deal in open source. We provide managed open source for large companies. We believe that open source is really awesome and we want to be part of it. So we're optimistic. And as it relates to customer success, we believe that for our customers. We're practical is value number two. We know that the words and these lofty ideals aren't enough. And so we try to be very pragmatic and very honest and have a really honest assessment of ourselves and our product. The third is additive. We have a growth mindset that we're capable of learning and doing more. And then finally is around inclusivity and diversity. And we believe the world is a better place with diverse voices. So those are the things that we practice internally but also bring those to the table when we're dealing with customers. I love the four values. I am really interested by one especially though, and it's the element of kind of open source. Now you've been involved in both sales and customer success in closed source also. How does it differ in terms of traditional enterprise software versus open source, specifically when it comes to customer success? Is there a core differentiator? Well, I'll tell you for us, what's a core differentiator is Open source is an amazing phenomenon of all of these people contributing with no expectation to get anything back. And when we talk about additive as it relates to open source, there's been a history of companies harvesting the value from open source, but not then adding back to it. So when we think about customer success, we don't want to just harvest the best things of open source and not contribute back, but we also want to be ones that are adding to the value. That's sort of the core underlying mission. So our products and services are around how can we make help companies utilize open source more effectively, more securely, more responsibly, as well as contribute. And then it's a two-sided marketplace. So we've got subscriber companies that we provide support for the open source that they use. And on the other side, we have the maintainers themselves that we pay to keep their open source that they are responsible for secure, et cetera. So we're trying to add back in both ways and make both parties successful. And when you have a commercial product, you don't have this two-sided marketplace where you're trying to balance both. And so making sure that we're not just harvesting, but that we're really contributing in a meaningful way back to the community. And we engage in that 
also with our customers, which I think is really, really powerful. I mean, speaking of kind of engaging with your customers in that way, I am really interested. If we kind of take the kind of head of sales that you have worn before, now incorporated the head of CS also, a lot of questions that I get asked from early stage founders is, okay, I'm always told that I need to develop a sales playbook before I can hire my first sales rep, and then I pass it on to them. With customer success, is it the same? Is there a customer success playbook that I have to develop? And when should I hire my first rep? I guess there's kind of three separate questions there that are kind of integrated. How do you think about that requirement for CS? playbook and when to hire your first? So I see sales and customer success as a continuum. I don't see them as distinct, perhaps, as some might see them. When the sales team is engaging early on, what we're trying to identify is what is the success criteria of this particular prospect? What are they trying to achieve? And how might we be able to help them do that? And so by extension then, that after the commercials are completed, we're just extending what that looks like. So I think a highly functional, evolved team is one that starts the criteria really early on and is just rolling it out and playing it out. If you don't do a good job on the sales side early on and setting those expectations, it will be very difficult for you to do a good job on the customer success side. So the playbook needs to be written as you're working this out with prospects. And in fact, Terry, I'm working right now on some big proposals. Some of the sales reps and I are working on some big proposals. And customer success is highly involved because in these proposals is a success plan. And what we do is we send out in a Google Doc a proposal and we ask the the prospect to review it with us and tell us where we have it wrong before we submit something formal. And it's not just pricing. It goes all through the rollout, Harry, of what it's going to look like as we roll out and not just roll out and onboarding, but then what does success look like? So we start really, really early. Then to your question about when to hire Because it's a continuum, and again, we're an early stage company. So what we did, as you've probably seen before, is founders early involved. Everybody's involved. Founders early involved. Then you have the sales team that's sort of managing it as it extends. And then we got to a point also, again, we we sell to very large, primarily regulated industries. Because we're selling high six-figure deals, we just need to make sure that we've got enough resources on the ground to deliver a really incredible experience to them. How do you think about professional services and the challenges that naturally occur in terms of delivering that in a COVID world? We're all learning. We've had to adjust a lot of our delivery mechanisms. And these are things that we're doing in conjunction with our customers. It's interesting, Harry, because we sell a technical product to technical people, they've actually been distributed for quite some time because in order to get great talent, you've got to be distributed. You don't have to be, but it helps if you can be in terms of getting talent. So I don't know that we're facing as much of a challenge because the teams that we work with are often highly distributed anyway, but it's going to continue to evolve. It's continuing to evolve. And it's something I think we're all really grappling with. Pulling on that thread, sorry, too interested not to dive in here. A lot of founders say, hey, our professional services is growing and it's becoming 30, 35% of revenues. At what point do you think professional services becomes too heavy weighted on the revenue front? And how should founders think about that kind of balance and tipping point? Well, I guess it's what function is professional services performing in terms of the sale, the implementation, and then the ongoing maintenance? And how big a part of your business do you want 
that to be? Do you want to be a services organization? If delivering services is fundamental to your product, like if it's a core competency, keep it. Keep it, keep it, keep it, keep it. If it's not, if it's something that you're delivering, but it's not really part of your core competency or differentiator, there would be an argument to bring in partners because there's some benefits that you can achieve if you're also using partners and letting them take on some of the professional services revenue. So I look at it just how core is it? to what you're delivering, the value that you deliver. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I love the integration there of partnerships. I do want to kind of stay on CSO. And so apologies for that drifting off. But we discussed that kind of the first starting point. If we then think about kind of enacting that and kind of putting a roadmap of success together, you've previously stated the importance of Maslow's hierarchy of needs as a roadmap for customer success. Bit of a cliffhanger for me with that one. So talk to me about this one, Bridget. How is the hierarchy of needs a roadmap for customer success in your mind? It's an interesting one. And our CEO, Donald Fisher, is the one who first started talking about this with prospects and customers. And if you think, Harry, at the very base level of the hierarchy, the basic needs, which are physiological and safety, what that translates to customer success, as I look at it, is implementation, onboarding. You answer my questions quickly. You handle my basic needs. And Harry, I think for too long, we've looked at these basic needs as I'm doing great customer success. They're implemented, they're onboarding, I answer their questions. And we measure things by that. If you go up a level though, the next two levels in Maslow's hierarchy are belonging and esteem. And those in the customer success world, they map to adoption and insights. Is there more that I can get? Because on the esteem side and the belonging, and what are other people doing? That kind of fits in there. Is there more? Are a lot of people using it? Do I feel good because I've got great adoption in the company? And that's better. Like customer success, when it moves up to that, and you're helping people, you're helping companies extend the adoption as well as get more insights, that's good. Okay, so I think most companies, if they get to that, they're going to give themselves an A. At Tidelift, we're not stopping with those. The very tip is the self-actualization. And what that looks like is a thought partner. And for Tidelift specifically, how are we together making open source better, this community. We have an amazing community. And again, specific to Tidelift, there's a movement when you get to this level of open source consumption. So how are we as a company consuming open source in a way that is efficient and secure and responsible to an external contribution? And Harry, what is so amazing and what's so thrilling about being part of Tidelift is the companies who we are engaging with. They have a strong desire to move beyond the harvesting of open source and getting whatever they can out of it because they know it's amazing. So they want to keep using it, but they also want to be contributors and to give back to this community. And that's where you get this self-actualization. And I think in other companies, it's similar. It's not going to map in the same way that Tidelift will map, but where do you find at the tip of the pyramid 
that you can engage with your customer to do something greater and to be really a thought partner in whatever it is that they're doing because they're the star of the show. I totally love that positioning as the thought partner. Can I ask, in terms of check-ins, I think a lot of CS teams get this wrong. What does the right check-in structure look like to you? And how do you think about really structuring that conversation ahead of time without being too formulaic and objective and maintaining that human element of the relationship? I'm not a fan, Harry, of, hey, just call it a check-in where there's no structure to it. If we go back to what we were talking about earlier, this success plan that we put in place before they become a customer, it does give you a roadmap. And they often have a roadmap of what they're trying to achieve. So we do two things. One, with good tooling, we try to understand as much as we can about what's happening in their environment without having to ask them. And again, not being creepy. I mean, they need to know, hey, we're looking at your dashboards or whatever it is, whatever kind of tooling makes sense. So we learned as much as we can through tooling because in SaaS, you have a great opportunity for that. And then number two is we really stick to and look at what they're trying to achieve in this success roadmap and use that as a template when we have these conversations. And has that shifted? Have things changed? COVID-19 changes a lot of things for how things are going to be rolled out, how we implement things. And it's a continual conversation. We also let our customers guide in terms of the frequency of check-ins and the mode. Sometimes it's phone, sometimes it's Zoom, sometimes it's Slack, sometimes it's text, sometimes it's email, sometimes it's a report, sometimes it's an in-app message. But we work with them to develop the communication cadence and style that works for them. Sorry, you said there about the impact of COVID. And uh, I do just have to ask, we're kind of with both hats on, I'm sure you have such amazing purview, but I have so many SaaS founders who say, hey, Harry, so far, my sales pipe hasn't been impacted. I guess, how would you respond and advise that founder? How have you seen your sales pipe be impacted? And how do you think a head of sales should be thinking now in enterprise when looking at their pipe? So when you've got founders who say the sales pipe hasn't been impacted, that to me means that when you just, if you think about sort of an axis of companies that are least affected to most affected and sort of the financial strength, they're selling into a quadrant that is financially strong and not as affected, which aren't very many companies, by the way, not very many companies that haven't had a supply chain disruption in some way. So I think that's great. I mean, that surprises me a little bit, but I think that's great. I think... But in, we, but in enterprise, the contracts are long, the clients are slow moving, generally speaking. Right. So with heavy enterprise, my concern is I go, okay, the big point here is so far, and actually we haven't had the first round of renewals and we haven't had the first discussions on discounting. This is going to be more painful than you think. Like, don't go into this thinking, so far we've been fine, so we can expect the same moving forward. Like, batten down the hatches is my advice. Yes. Would you agree with that? Yes. Yes. 100%. Because the plans are still evolving. The plans are still evolving. What one hears from a prospect or a customer may have been 
said to them with 100% integrity, this is going to happen in this time frame, 100% integrity, but things can change because we're not through it yet to know. Nobody knows. And so I agree with you that we need to move through with a measure of caution and realism. Again, one of our core values. Okay. So I can't get through the day without talking about one of our core values, (laughs) being practical and just flexible, build that into the plan that things are not going to go exactly as planned. They're not going to. If we have that in mind then, and willingness to accept uncertainty, say, when we think about rollouts, the other big thing that I'm seeing is just slippage, especially at the enterprise level. From the customer success perspective, what kind of core things are you seeing in terms of slippage, in terms of delayed rollouts that you think COVID has really impacted? Well, COVID affects people and people are part of these rollouts. People are getting sick. They've got family members who are sick. They are working in environments that they're not used to working in. So I think we see slippage and timeframes extended because of the very human element of what's happening and a lot of uncertainty. And Harry, people are more stressed. There's more anxiety. They can handle less. Zoom fatigue is a real thing. You factor in the human element of all of it. And things are going to take a little longer. We've got to accommodate for the human part of the businesses that we're selling into, that we're not selling to robots. And again, just keeping that in mind and having some buffer built in as we think about it. And it's a great muscle right now that we can learn to flex as an organization of being flexible and resilient and learning how to have some buffer, but still keeping things going down a, as predictable a path as we can. You said they're flexible and resilient. The question that I get a lot from different founders is, how much should we be willing to give when it comes to discounting? When you think about discounting and that flexibility and resilience in mind, you've got to meet your business objectives, but you also need to be flexible. How do you think about the right level of discounting to accept? God, it's so funny. Harry, I haven't thought about discounting at all. <laughs> really? No, I haven't. I haven't thought about because we're delivering against value. We're really trying to look at what the value creation. And I do understand how some companies would think about some discount based on the new reality. It's not my go-to place. It's not my go-to place. We try to price things fairly from the outset so we don't get into that. So I don't know. It's a good question. I get it, but that's not my go-to place. I mean, speaking of kind of that pricing fairly though, it does take me to something that you said to me before, which is kind of the centrality of trust for a CS team to be successful. And so I guess the biggest question for me is absolutely that makes sense. Me, the customer, you with Tidelift, how do we build trust in this relationship? And what really works in building that relationship of trust? Well, I don't think it's a surprise to anyone that trust is a key factor in driving customer engagement and loyalty. It's a key factor. Threading this pricing issue and trust, a great way to erode trust is to offer a customer a price. Then when they ask for a discount, you give them one without asking for anything in return. Because what that says to them subconsciously is, oh, I thought you were giving me the best price. But then you give me this other one. So that sows a seed of distrust. A way around that is a give to get. All right, I can give you a discount 
if you can close it this month because this is important for us or like volume discounts are normal or in exchange for a testimonial. Like there are things that you can do to give to get. What's hard also about this give to get in this environment is if I were to tell a customer, I'll give you a discount if you can do it this month, ah, that doesn't seem like it's really taking into account their realities also. I may be better off giving them extended terms just to do it that way. Okay, so that's writing the two together. So ways to establish this trust. I tell the team, you have to be trustworthy in order to get trust. Like you have to be trustworthy. So you have to tell the truth first and foremost. Second, it's okay. And in fact, I often encourage it, Harry, to tell a prospect or a customer things that you can do and things that you can't do. Because it lets them know that you're not just trying to sell them swampland in Florida. Also, another way to develop trust is to say, for example, I will deliver this proposal to you by Friday at 4 p.m. And you put in a date and a time and you deliver on it. And that starts to say, oh, they, okay, they do what they say they're going to do. Conversely, if you make commitments that you can't keep, you'll erode trust in that way. Totally aligned in terms of, it sounds, I don't mean it badly, but so few people do, as you said, what they said they would do. I'll email you tonight and it comes through tomorrow. And it's like, you said tonight, build that trust in that really important way. I guess the biggest way that trust is often kind of deemed to be eroded within the realm of customer success, or often a lot of people think it is, is when customer success is heavily involved in upsell processes. I'm interested to hear your thoughts here. Does being involved in the upsell process erode that element of trust? And should customer success be involved? I don't think it should erode trust at all if a customer success person is involved in an upsell. Because we shouldn't be talking about an upsell if we don't think that there is some value based on that upsell. So there needs to be a lot of integrity in the process. And if there's integrity in the process, I don't see that there's any issue with a customer success person also being involved in an upsell. I think sometimes where I see a separation as being helpful is sometimes customer success people, if they're more technical than not, they just don't feel as comfortable or as fluent around that process in the commercials. And I don't see that as a problem. I would rather them be clunky and just be honest because customers see that and they respond well to it. But sometimes I can see just a separation of roles that you want one person that you just know if it's a highly technical product, that they just handle the technical side and they like to have that handoff, sort of a division of work. Because getting involved in the commercials you're involved in a lot of other pieces of the business. So I see it not as a issue of trust as much as just a division of labor. Totally agreed in terms of the division of labor. And I'm, I'm glad we're aligned on that. I do want to dive into my favorite though, Bridget, which is a quick fire round. So I say a short statement and then you give me your immediate thoughts in about 60 seconds or less. Are you ready to rock and roll? Yes. Okay. So I, I love this one, actually. What motto or quote do you most frequently revert back to and why? Okay. Well, I'll tell you my most recent and these change. So the one that I've been quoting most recently is, 
if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. And I just finished this great book called Boys in the Boat about this rowing team that won the 1936 Olympics in Berlin. I so believe, Harry, that we can do so much more if we do it together. I'm a big believer in teamwork. And again, at Tidelift, we've got this opportunity to work together as a team, to work together teams within the company, to work together as teams within this larger open source community. And I just really believe that we've got this great opportunity if we work together. COVID-19 is another great example. Let's figure out how to do this together. What do you know now that you wish you'd known when you entered SaaS? I'm probably not giving a good answer here, but I love surprises. So I love the unknowing. For me, I'm so curious. So to learn something new. So I'm sort of glad I didn't know any more than I knew so that I would have the privilege of discovery, which I think is just a fantastic journey. Oh my word. That, I mean, it sounds wonderful, but no, I don't enjoy the privilege of discovery. I'd much rather get to the end point much quicker. <laughs> That's funny. I do want to ask that. Okay. Biggest surprise about the move to Tidelift? I didn't know that a company could be so rooted in values and what that does to how we work together as a team and how we show up in the world. It is one of the greatest privileges of my professional career. This founding team are inspiring. They move me to tears, what they're trying to do in the world. And I just, I feel really committed to what they're doing and who they are and really wanting to bring about more diversity. And here are four individuals who don't have to care who do and are using their background to do it. So just that I could be so inspired by the company. Building a team outside of the Bay, what's the biggest pro and the biggest con? Well, we're 100% remote. So we're all over the place. We've got a core of people in Boston where I sit now. So I think one of the pros is when you're building all over the place, you've got a larger talent pool. So we get great talent. Also, at this time, COVID-19, we're all used to working remote. The biggest con is, oh gosh, Harry, there's nothing that can replace the in-person. So we do get together as a company several times a year, but the camaraderie in an office and that in-person is probably the biggest con. If you could change one thing about the world of SaaS today, what would it be and why? It's probably the one thing I love and the one thing I hate. So I think sometimes with SaaS, there's the ability to leave something quickly, you know, that you can be in and out because it's easy to rip and replace. I think sometimes companies may not stick with a product or service long enough and it puts a lot of pressure on quicker wins. And I think we lose something if you're not able to establish sort of a longer term relationship and moving to that point, like I said, of self-actualization really developing something great together. Do you think time to value can actually be quite an erosive, problematic principle? Because essentially you could try and gamify it to create kind of short-term value creation to reduce the time to value kind of pendulum. But actually there might be more value or an optimal situation created with just a little bit more time and kind of slower to value, but more value. Yes. Plus one to that. I agree. Yeah. No, it's something that uh, always annoys me when people go, oh, it's all about time to value. So totally align there. Okay. Final one. Who in SaaS customer success today do you think is killing it? And why do you get inspired by them, admire them in terms of their approach? So a couple of companies come to mind. One is outreach 
the CEO, Manny Medina, I knew early on. And what inspires me about them is they really are working with customers to try to get to that tip of Maslow's hierarchy and partner to try to figure out what are sales teams trying to do. Okay, so that's one. Zapier, I think, is another one. I know the team there and the woman that's running customer success. And again, what inspires me about them is this close collaboration with their partners and really pushing the envelope in terms of trying to help them do more and the customers really being the star of the show. And then finally, there's a company catalyst, which is a startup, these two brothers, Edward and Kevin Chu, that are creating a new customer success platform. And I'm just really anxious to see what they're going to come out with. But I love that they're trying to change things up a bit. Totally with you. I think Catalyst are great. But Bridget, listen, as I said, I've wanted to do this episode for a while since I saw about the move. So thank you so much for joining me today. And this has been so much fun. Likewise, Harry. I always so love my discussions with Bridget and I want to say a huge thank you to her for giving up the time today to be on the show and if you'd like to see more from us behind the scenes then you can on Instagram at hstebbings1996 with two b's it's always so great to see you there but before we leave you today Lucidchart is a visual workspace that makes it easy to see and understand how your business works whether you're visualising cloud architecture whiteboarding ideas for a breakthrough application redesigning team structures to be more agile or streamlining a process that will drive greater productivity Lucidchart helps you see how to make your business better with more than 20 million people and 99% of the Fortune 500 relying on Lucidchart to see more, know more, and do more. Join them by trying Lucidchart for free at lucidchart.com forward slash 20VC. That's lucidchart.com forward slash 20VC. And then there's a global pandemic. There's grim economic forecasts. Are you feeling the squeeze? An R&D tax credit can help you really lower your burn. If you qualify, and most tech startups actually do, the IRS and some state governments will give you a tax credit equal to 10% of your company's spend on development activities. You can even take the credit against payroll taxes if you're in the red. All you have to do is claim it. So what's stopping you? Cross-border solutions and AI-driven R&D tax credit software eliminates the need for pricey consultants and allows you to apply for R&D credits all over the world for one low fee. It's your money. Keep more of it with Cross-Border Solutions, the global leader in AI-driven tax solutions. And you can request a demo today by visiting xbs.ai forward slash two zero that's xbs.ai slash two zero and there are two ways to add analytics to your application build them yourself with basic charts and dashboards using free charting libraries or use a comprehensive analytics platform from a really trusted partner if you've tried the build route you know free is not free hidden costs like time maintenance and technical debt can really add up and that's why you should check out logi analytics their developer grade embedded analytics solutions make it easy to create branded dashboards and reports that scale within your own application. So stop wasting your dev team's time piecing analytics together and let them focus on your core application. Visit logianalytics.com forward slash Sasta. Visit them today and see what is possible. As always, I so appreciate all your support and I can't wait to bring you a phenomenal set of episodes next week.